a podcast from St. Benedict's Table, a congregation of the Anglican Church of Canada, located in Winnipeg, Manitoba. May only truth be spoken and only truth received. Amen. We're now actually at the fourth episode in this continuing sermon series on the stories of nation and kingship. In ancient Israel, we've come to a, to a real transition point in the unfolding narrative. We watch as the figure of David continues to ascend, and at the same time we begin to feel the temperature and tension rising in the internal politics of the royal household. As our story moves forward, the narrator will tell us that Saul was very angry displeased by David's growing prominence and popularity as a military leader. The king grows angry and displeased in spite of the fact that this young hero is securing for him, for King Saul, victories he himself was unable to win. Perhaps it's angry and jealous. Jealous because Saul can see his own status beginning to fade in the eyes of the people. The episode follows directly on the heels of the story we told last week, the story of David's unlikely defeat of the Philistine Goliath. Abner, one of the key leaders in Saul's army, brings the young man before Saul, who asks first his identity, whose son are you, young man? And then he takes David that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Can't let a warrior like this one just go back home to his father's farm to tend the sheep. He's needed close at hand to serve now with the Israelite military force. And so the narrator tells us David went out and he was successful wherever Saul sent him. As a result... Saul set him over the army. This is a thoroughly astonishing ascent from shepherd to general in what seems just a matter of months. As the text is structured, it would seem that at first Saul received David's military skills as a gift to the kingdom. Certainly the people saw things in that way, For the narrator is clear that all the people, even the servants of Saul, approved. He's rising, is our David. Before King Saul's jealous anger begins to get introduced into the story, there's one other really notable element that comes into play. The friendship between David and Saul's son, Jonathan. The connection between the two, as the story is told in this passage, seems to come right out of nowhere. It's right after David has had his formal introduction, post-Goliath introduction, to Saul. We're told that the soul of Saul's son, Jonathan, was bound to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved David as his own soul. It's powerful language, isn't it? the binding together of souls. And then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. In the biblical tradition, the language of covenant is stronger still. It's the language of 
binding fidelity and loyalty to covenant with somebody is to treaty with them in a binding way. As Jonathan makes that covenant, he stripped himself of the royal robe he was wearing and he gave it to David along with his armor, even his sword and his bow and his belt. Now think about that one for a minute. Jonathan is the heir, the rightful heir to Saul's throne, next in line to be king of Israel. And here he is giving David his prince's robe, his armor, sword, bow, and belt. We know, because we've been following this story, we know that David has already been secretly anointed to be the next king, the rising and true king by the prophet Samuel. David knows it. David's father Jesse knows it. His brothers know it. But nobody else does. It's still very much underground. Yet at least at some subconscious level, Jonathan too seems to know at least something of who David is. While in the story of his battle with Goliath, David had refused to put on Saul's armor because he couldn't walk in it. It was encumbering. It was too big. Here in this next story, he accepts the armor of Jonathan. Saul's armor, so awkward, so oversized, so impossible to walk in. And besides, it wasn't armor that David was trusting in at that moment. It was God. The gift of Jonathan's armor was different. David could wear Jonathan's armor, whereas Saul had tried to give David his armor in a kind of an act of desperation. Yeah, please, put this on. Go fight that unbeatable foe. Jonathan's gift is grounded in covenant and friendship. That depth of friendship is striking. Though you might be interested to know that in the medieval world, there actually emerged something of a parallel practice. It was a practice often known in the medieval times as wedded friendship, in which two men, and occasionally two women, would have their covenant of friendship blessed by the parish priest at the church door, seemingly arising from the shared experience of soldiers who'd survived battle together. Such covenants were meant to signal lifelong bonds of faithful friendship. There are even medieval churches in England where you can find these sort of memorial plaques that you see spread around all saints. You can see them dedicated in memory of that friendship. There are cemeteries in which graves can be found, where the two great friends were buried side by side, a headstone erected over the two of them. In our context, our cultural world, we're inclined to think that the only bond of that kind of strength that would lead you to want to be buried together would be marriage. Earlier ages apparently saw things differently. Later in this narrative, David will even memorialize his great friend Jonathan with the words, My brother, 
This is after Jonathan has died. My brother, greatly beloved were you to me. Your love to me was wonderful, surpassing the love of women. Something very, very strong in the picture of covenant friendship between them. I think we have to recover some of that strength of friendship and binds that tie people that aren't necessarily just limited to marriages. Well, those words when David memorializes Jonathan, those are the words that he speaks right at the moment of hearing of his great friend's death, which also points to a reality. The reality that friendships of that kind of depth are no less complicated, no less fraught with risk than are our marriages. You see, as David continues his ascent, King Saul will become increasingly jealous, increasingly angry and hostile. As the narrator presents it, even as David makes his way to formally meet Saul after his battle with Goliath, the seeds of the hostility are already being sown. So the narrator says, the women came out of all the towns of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul and his company with tambourines, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. Saul would have been delighted. And the women sang to one another as they made merry Saul has killed his thousands, and David his tens of thousands. This reception for David displeased him, the text says, and so Saul eyed David from that day on. Saul became wary and watchful of David, sensing the threat that he'd begun to pose As Walter Brueggemann summarizes it all, Saul has it right, but for all the wrong reasons. Saul knows more than he understands, for he sees David only as ambitious, not as destined. Saul understands everything except the powerful resolve of Yahweh to draw David to the throne which means Saul understands nothing at all except his own pitiful jeopardy. It is precisely this pitiful jeopardy that Saul is experiencing that will make the friendship of David and Jonathan so incredibly painful. As Saul's hostility grows, David will be forced to flee. And it is actually Jonathan who tips off David and makes the escape possible. Jonathan is bound to his father Saul by blood and by family, and he's bound to David by covenant and friendship. It's an almost impossibly painful place for him to stand. David's flight from Saul will also mean the loss of his friend. They don't see each other again. The loss of that friend to whom he's bound soul to soul. David will go on to live by his wits. 
He'll lead a small band of followers, work as a mercenary soldier, simply to survive. He'll be pursued by Saul and Saul's soldiers, hunted out in wilderness places, but never quite caught. It gets close. The storyteller delights in how close it gets, but David always slips away. All the time, though, all through these adventures, he's cut off from the friend whom he loves. For while Jonathan was prepared to help David to escape from Saul's wrath, Jonathan can't or won't flee with him. Jonathan will stay by his father, feeling perhaps a little more than conflicted and compromised. And his life will ultimately come to its end on the battlefield where he's been fighting alongside of his father. It's also the place where Saul will die. The jealousy and desperation of a king who cannot or will not see beyond his need to secure his hold on power. The extraordinary bond of friendship which leaves Jonathan so conflicted in his allegiances and ends in sorrow for David. For all that David is anointed by God, for all that he's called out, destined, accompanied by God, the path that he walks is one marked by these very human textures, very human losses, and very human pain. For all that Israel and Judah loved David, for all that God's Spirit was upon David, his path to the throne is no easy one. I think we can actually take a kind of a strange comfort in that. The human dynamics of these stories, which are very much our stories, because they're stories of our forebears, but also stories that form our imaginations. They're not glossed over or prettied up. Even in these stories of his ascent, where David is clearly the hero we get a rather unvarnished picture of all that he was living in. To say nothing of an unvarnished picture of the tragic Saul and the sorrowful, conflicted Jonathan. Their emotions, all of them, they're very real. Their decisions have very real consequences. They're not merely figures from history who can be sort of tracked down a family tree. Instead, they are like us. They are our forebears, part of our story. And as is so true of us, in the very midst, in the very midst of the muddiness of their lives, the difficulty of their decisions, the conflictedness of their emotions, God is yet at work. May we in our lives always see that. Regardless of what it is we face, regardless of of the things that, that we're challenged by or drawn to or repelled by or struggle with, and yet God is at work. In the name of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. listening to a podcast from St. Benedict's Table. For more information on the church, 
or to offer your support for our ministries, visit us online at stbenedictstable.ca.